Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the first of what we are calling the Mixtape Interviews. I'm Hannah Ayler, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Mike Dunlavy. And today, we have with us a guest. We are happy to welcome to the podcast Dr. David Simpson. Dr. Simpson is an internationally renowned geophysicist who is also a native of our home base here in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. He has reached out to us about his connection to the Golden Record, and we are very excited to be talking with him about it today. So, welcome, David. Thank you very much. So, tell us a bit about what your connection to the Golden Record is. Well, my... My connection to the record is very short. I think it's there's less than five seconds of earthquake <laughs> sounds on there. But while I was a student in Australia, one of my graduate projects was to record signals from some big chemical explosions in northern Australia and from a nuclear explosion in uh, the Aleutian Islands, Longshot, in 1970, 71, maybe. And to... To record those, we developed a, a very simple recording device that took a, in those days, standard 7.5-inch reel-to-reel tape recorder, slowed it way, way down. So instead of recording at a standard of 7.5 inches per second, it was recording at a hundredth of an inch a second. That meant you could capture very low frequencies on magnetic tape. And when you played it back at regular speed, everything was speeded up by a factor of 800. So the earthquake's frequencies, which are down in the 1 hertz down to 20 seconds or so, were all brought up into the audio range, and you could listen to the, the sounds of the earth. So that's, <laughs> that was my, my first introduction to using this technique. I left Australia, brought my little tape of those sounds along, and I went to do some well, I went to do a, a one- or two-year postdoc at Lamont Observatory of Columbia University, where I stayed for 20 years, so the, <laughs> the postdoc grew into longer than I thought it would. The dream of every postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I honestly, it's 40 years ago, I forget exactly how the connection was made. I know somebody had heard that I had these sounds of the earth, and there was a woman who was doing an interpretive dance uh, performance in Manhattan and she wanted, she had sounds of, of pulsars and quasars and you know all sorts of bird sounds and wind sounds and surf sounds and she'd heard I had earthquake sounds so she wanted to build that into her performance and she did and it was great fun to go down and, and watch <laughs> wow. this yeah. uh, dance developing but I, it may have been through her or it may have been through somebody who, a colleague who was at Cornell somebody heard about these yeah. recordings I had, and asked me if they could use it for this record they were developing. And yeah. I said, sure. That's amazing. Yeah, Cornell was definitely sort of the home base of Sagan and Drake and the fellows who were putting all this right. together. And wasn't his wife, Anne Durant, wasn't she pretty heavily involved in developing and, the record? Andrian, yeah, and with this, with this Sound of Earth montage, that 12-minute montage, I think that was one of Anne's principal projects. So it, part may, of it. it may have been, the contact may have come, somewhere at home I think I've got the record, but the yeah. letter that I... They sent asking if they could use this, but it may have come from her. It may have been somebody who was working with her. I don't know. And what was your reaction to getting this letter? Was it was it? Uh... Well, my <laughs> my reaction was not many people have a chance to publish their PhD thesis material on something that goes into an extraterrestrial, uh, <laughs> extra solar trajectory. Statement. So yeah. uh, I said sure, yeah. and I sent them off this short recording. Um, we can perhaps listen to it later on, but I Absolutely. think it's it's. The, what's on the record is interesting. It's a segment of it. 
it's one of, I think, a very interesting sound of the earth, but there are lots of, lots of other ones as well, of course. Yeah, uh, I mean, when we, when we talked about the sound of earth montage, what we noticed was that the sounds were sort of placed in a chronological order of the, of the planet. So it, it starts with like ethereal sounds of coming from planetary motion, and then it's like earth formation, volcanoes, earthquakes, thunderstorms, and then you get beginnings of life and more complicated life than then. The, the sound of the earthquake is like right at the beginning as uh-huh, part of uh-huh. the, the, this is the earth taking shape. Right. I want to get back to what you were saying about chemical explosions and nuclear explosions. <laughs> what was going on in Australia at the time? Well, um, well, two things, two connections there. Actually, the, the nuclear explosion that we recorded was in the Aleutians in Alaska. Oh, okay. So we were recording it halfway across the, the earth. I mean, these, oh. these big explosions, oh. this, was a, this was a big one. This okay. A, a megaton, I think. Well, even the, the, the North Korean uh, test that was a few weeks ago, that, that's recorded by seismometers that the organization wow. I was with still operate that all over the world. So it's, this, was, this was using the explosion in the Aleutians, not so much concerned about the explosion itself, but using it as a very well, well-constrained source to look at the changes in structure underneath Australia. Oh, I see. So you you were using it almost as a as like a like a an impulse probe right, to right, look at the right. okay. And the interesting other nuclear collection connection to that was uh, we put the line of these tape recorders we developed from the east eastern Australia all the way through into western Australia. And I, as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young <laughs> graduate student, uh, got the chance to spend fifteen hours in a Cessna with a very good licensed instructor pilot. I never did get my actual piece of paper, but by the time we we finished, I was actually taking off and landing. I had to reach over and wake him up once while <laughs> asking where we were supposed to go. But we landed. One of the stations we put in was right in the middle of the Australian Bight, halfway, right, right in the center of Australia is a place called Maralinga, which was where the British tested their nuclear explosions in the 1950s. So Australia was the test site for Australia's nuclear, for the British nuclear tests in the 1950s. I did not know that. And so in the middle of Australia, with nobody there, there's a 5,000-foot runway where they, (laughs) and they was completely set up for doing these tests. And we landed this little Cessna on the taxiway, not even on the runway. I landed on the taxiway, put a station out, and... uh, And was it abandoned at that point? I think there were three people there. (laughs) For Australia, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So the... This thing of, I, th- I think I read somewhere, it's called autification, turning the, the low-frequency seismic signals into... Does turning it into audible sound reveal anything? Like, does it, uh, does it, does it help examine the data, or...? Yeah, I, I, they're, they're, you picked up, I think, on what is really the correct term. Sonification is taking Sorry, different types of data like population statistics and sonifying them and see if you can unravel things in the data there. Autification, which is really what we did, is just changing some aspect, in our case, just speeding up the sounds from the earthquake. And that's one of the reasons why I got interested in it, not so much during my PhD experience, but after that was exactly the question you're asking. Is there something we can learn by listening? I mean, the, the human ear is so good Mm-hmm. at detecting subtle differences in sound. Is there something that we can, some way we can use this to help pull out information that, that 
would not normally be seen. And I would claim you can. There are there are patterns that you can hear that are not so obvious, especially when you're looking at masses and masses and masses of data. And but the the one thing that your physics backgrounds I think will help you with is that the one problem is the the human ear is phase intensitive. So when you're thinking of and, and, and all these earthquake sounds are are short duration. They're impulses. They're not they're not long drawn. The the human ear is used to pulling information out of sustained signals, not impulsive signals. And one of the things the ear can't do is tell a push from a pull. And that's one of the things that's really important earthquake studies is, you know, whether the, the first motion is up or down. And the human ear can't tell the difference between a, an initial push or initial initial pull. But one of the reasons I got interested in this was there are a very limited number of mostly women around the world who are really well known as or were well known because it's not done this way anymore. But in the days of photographic earthquake records, they were really well known as seismic analysts. And you could put a one-day seismogram in front of one of them. And they would look at it, and they could just say, that earthquake is from the Banda Sea, that earthquake is from California, that earthquake, just because they could recognize the patterns. No matter what size it was, big, small, you know, far away, close by, they, they knew the character. And I thought we should be able to do that with our, with our ears as well. A lot, of these, a lot of these people were trained in, um, at least the one that was at Columbia that was very famous there, was trained in interpreting uh, electrocardiograms. Mm-hmm. So they could Similar, she, yeah. they could identify problems in the, right. in you, the heart. Yeah, yeah. cardiologists can look at an, at an EKG and figure yeah. out exactly what the problem right. is from just the right. weirdness of the curves. Right. Yeah. Right. So when, when, when we're listening to one of these recordings of an, of an earthquake, are, are we literally hearing like the plates rubbing together or like are, are, is that what we're hearing like yeah exactly i mean you're, you're you're hearing the plates are constantly rubbing against one another when an earthquake happens it's the the, the stresses reach a level where it suddenly breaks and mm-hmm. so the earthquake is a sudden release you know a typical earthquake at its source magnitude seven rate earthquake may last for tens of seconds to maybe a minute. I mean, a really big earthquake could last for more than a minute. But by the time it gets into the earth, the earth, speed of the earth increases with depth. And so different phases, there are what are called body waves that dive into the earth. There are P waves, pressure waves, there are shear waves. They travel at different speeds. There are others that travel along the surface of the earth. And as you get farther and farther away, this very impulsive tens of seconds duration earthquake turns into something that it can extend out and be a minute, two minutes, three minutes long because it's hearing earth. It's like standing in the middle of, a, of an echo chamber and clapping your hands. The, the resonance goes on for a long time. Just w- waiting for everything to resettle yeah. into its yeah. new rest yeah. spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What, you're, what you're hearing is a, a sensor. We're, we're, we're speaking into microphones here. These things are called geophones or seismometers. Mm-hmm. They're sensing earth motion in the, 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 the band that lasts in the earth is from tens, hundreds, for a big earthquake, even thousands of seconds, up to 5, 10 hertz. Mm-hmm. 
it's that bandwidth that we're then speeding up and moving it up into the range so that the, the human ear can, can hear the sounds rather than, you know, if you were in the earthquake, you'd, you'd feel it. You'd feel the yeah. vibrations rather than, than hearing it. And with this, with this earthquake that you recorded, which I think was um, in Australia in 1971, would that have been an earthquake someone would have felt? Or would oh, that, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I think the sequence that, that's there was a, a very large earthquake in Papua New Guinea, north of Australia. It's a very active zone, north mm-hmm. of Australia, Indonesia, into Papua New Guinea, where Australia is moving north and cramming into Southeast Asia. Um, that big earthquake, there, there, are, there are a sequence in this, in this set that I saved. There's the big earthquake, then thousands of aftershocks from it, which are fascinating because you can hear... If you speed it up even more, you can listen to a, a few days of activity compressed into a minute or so. Right. You can hear the big earthquake and then thousands of aftershocks. And then, but there are some others there as well. There's um, one that was uh, an earthquake in New Zealand, and you you see this both from New Zealand to Australia, and also from the Caribbean to East Coast to North America. The northern, northeastern U.S. or in, in Halifax, you can get an earthquake that happens on one side of an ocean basin. The earthquake happens, the sound wave comes up, hits the continental shelf, gets trapped in the sulfur channel. You know, the, the sulfur channel is the temperature inversion that traps energy over the submarines like in the, to, in to the water. In yeah. the water. Yeah. So this energy comes out of the earth into the sulfur channel where it travels at a much slower speed than it does through the water. And at the other end of its path, so Caribbean to North America, it hits the continent shelf again and converts back into a seismic phase. Mm-hmm. So you get this, this sequence that is the earth sound, then a long silence, and then whoosh, this, this other energy comes through that's spent all of its time in the ocean rather than in the, in the earth. So it was one of them, and then some local earthquakes. Shall we listen to that now? Is that, isn't that yeah. a good moment for that? Can we listen? Yeah. Sure. At the very beginning, you're going to hear this, this, there's one pulse per minute. So it'll give you an idea. It goes, bzz, 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 bzz. each one of those buzzes is a minute. Okay. So it's speeded up. Oh, I see. And then this, there's a couple of small local events that sound like gunshots. <laughs> and then there's a, a very distant earthquake. And then there's magnitude 7 in New Guinea. So all of this is played at about 200 times real time. And then there's the New Guinea aftershock sequence, which is speeded up another, up to 800 times, and you hear these thousands of aftershocks. Mm-hmm. And then there's a strange T phase, the ocean phase from New Zealand. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about listening to that one. <laughs> so, let's see. And as I said, you you and your listeners really want to turn up their woofers and... (laughs) (laughs) That's the the pulse. That's the pulse. That's the... a a very distant earthquake. These are some local ones. It's the body waves you're hearing and then the surface waves. Oh, that's why there's two. Yeah. And then this is a New Guinea one. 
hear some aftershocks. Actually, that's a that was a local earthquake that may have been triggered by the event in, in New Guinea. In New Guinea. But then this this is a there's, there's an, an aftershock, and it sounds you can tell why you couldn't tell the difference. It sounds just like thunder. It sounds yeah, like, it sounds like a thunderstorm. Yeah. 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 Here's here's two more aftershocks. This is the, the next piece is the same thing figured up there again. And each one of those cracks is maybe a magnitude four or five earthquake. All this happening you know, in New Guinea, north yeah. of Australia. As I said, I set up two Two, um, two tape recorders running because those we were just local earthquakes and those local earthquake sounds. Oh, just a second. This is the T phase. Okay. Ooh. That's the earthquake. And that whoosh is what's the piece that's going through the, so the far, ocean. so far through the ocean. Whoa. But I set up these two systems so if I heard bump, those cracks and nothing on the other instrument, which is just a kilometer or two away, it was a kangaroo. Oh. But if, if you heard papal, papal yeah. was always, you knew it was, you knew it was a, an earthquake because it was in the local disturbance. Yeah. And could you use that to also figure out what direction the yeah, earthquake could, was coming from? Like, if you, you could tell which way it was, where it was closer to, yeah. which one came first. And the, 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 the enclosure we had to keep this instrument in was a box, like this plywood box with a copper top, and the copper top was slightly bowed, and it tended to fill up with water, oh. and so kangaroos or wombats, whatever, <laughs> love Come to and drink. Come and drink. <laughs> and you could actually, I, I didn't save it, but I, I remember carefully looking at one size began that was kaboom, 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 getting bigger and bigger, and this Russell, 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 Russell <laughs> sat there and drank, and then you could watch it upping away again. But that I can... I can, uh, I'd give you that, and I've, I mean, at some stage, if you're interested, there's a whole bunch of more modern ones, because now what we can do, this, this was recorded on an instrument, seismometer that's about that size. So about a, about a foot, about yeah. a foot yeah. high. high yeah. and, you know, it's just a, like a, like a, um, like a shoebox on its end. Like a me. milk bottle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, primary response was at one one cycle, one 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 hertz. Okay. Now we've got instruments that have sensitivities out to three thousand seconds, up to ten hertz, all in one instrument. This is the, the, the wonders of modern yeah. feedback yeah. technology. Yeah. Absolutely. And they record digitally on twenty four bit digitizers. So thirty years after these recordings were made with a simple little tape recorder, now we've got these broadband instruments that are much much richer. So you can actually, you can hear after the Indian Ocean tsunami yeah. earthquake. That earthquake was big enough to set the whole of the earth ringing like a bell. It goes into free oscillation and lasts for like a week, a month afterwards. Wow. And if you listen to that, it sounds, it hit the earth, it hit the earth hard enough, it sounds just like a bell. No. Would, the, would these waves have been like surface waves over the earth, or is there, are we going through it's the middle? The modes. It's, it's all the modes of the earth. There's there some modes that are, are completely radial, so the earth 
and there's some that are, are football shaped, so they are elongated north south. There's others right. that are, so just there's 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 what 30, 40 different modes before you get into what are real surface waves. So these are fundamental modes of a of the solid earth. Well, wow. I, I I don't speak for Roby and Hannah when I say that, that that's mildly terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The recordings that you have now with the new technology, that's as I understand it, with a large worldwide consortium that yeah. you have had quite a lot to do with. Would yeah. you like to tell us more about that? Because as a scientist, I'm jealous. <laughs> well, um, it, I mean, it, it, it has been an amazing ride. This was started in 1983. And it's when, in 1983, there was a number of, it was the perfect storm. <laughs> there was a lot of concern in certain parts of U.S. Congress about nuclear testing. There was a lot of support for trying to find a counter to the national intelligence. The the Defense Department, the uh, National Security Council, they had their... Methods. Their their methods (laughs) for listening to nuclear explosive testing. But there was interest in getting academic groups involved in opening this up so it would be an open source of that was part of the perfect storm. The other was in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, the National Science Foundation was getting very concerned about decaying infrastructure for scientific experiments. And um, this group of seismologists came together and said, you know, what we need is, then the fighting began, do we need small <laughs> instruments for doing shallow studies of the crust? Do we need big instruments for doing um, studies of the whole Earth? And there were two or three attempts to get this going, and then the, the, the National Science Foundation, in its infinite wisdom, and really was the right response at that stage, was go away, get your act together, come back, and tell us what you really need. And the third piece that was coming together was this new technology, these mm-hmm. feedback seismometers that be, allowed you to get uh, this very broad response, plus of course, digital recording, which meant instead of being limited to just very short-duration things on magnetic tape, you could start doing things, recording it digitally. And so the community put this proposal together, went to the National Science Foundation and says, here's our you know, five-year proposal for $150 million. And they said, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. Here's $250,000. <laughs> See what you can do. Been there. <laughs> but out of that grew this, you know, they, they said, we want this to be open. We want it to be community-driven. It turned into a consortium, which has now grown to well over 150 U.S. Um, universities plus uh, another 150 international universities and research groups. And this group, is called IRIS, the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, does three things. It operates this global network with the U.S. Geological Survey, 150 stations almost equally distributed all over the, the globe that record these data in real time. They're transmitted out of the station into our data management center in Seattle, Washington, so that these data are available openly within seconds of when the... So everyone has access to the raw data yep. almost immediately yep. upon an yep. event happening. Yep. That's, that's amazing. Okay. And then there are portable instruments, a couple thousand portable instruments that people can you know, propose to carry out their own experiment in a particular area for a particular reason. And there's this data management center, which is now up to... I've lost count, but it's petabytes of, of data, all of which are online 
all of which are real-time accessible. So you can go in and select how many stations of thousands of stations, which stations do you want, which time do you want, which event do you want, over the last 30 years, and pull out. And either the simplest end, you can listen to them like we just did, or you can use them for all sorts of different types of experiments for both understanding the earthquake source, so their source studies, the, the earthquake is what you're interested in, or using the earthquake, as you said earlier, for a, you know, as a source for studying the structure of, mm-hmm. of the earth. So it sounds like, I mean, open data is definitely a topic that you get, you hear about a lot in other fields, but it sounds like you were doing this a few decades before anyone else got excited about That's it. That's who we're trying to convince people of. But <laughs> <laughs> Every, when, I'm convinced. Once, once, you, once you discover these things on your own, you want to say, well, I was there first. But no, you're right. And there's a good reason for that, is that seismology, earthquake seismology, by its very nature, you can't... I mean, there's a, there's a seismometer on Dell campus. It recorded the Halifax explosion that I also had some fun playing with. But... <laughs> You can't do anything with one station recording one earthquake. Right. You need to say, oh, a big earthquake happened in the southwest Pacific. We took stations from all over the world. Well, 50 years ago, that was done by photographic recording, copy the record, mail it. You'd send it a request to all your friends. They'd send all the data back in. So for 50 years, 100 years now, there's been this tradition in seismology of open data. So it's something that, that seismologists discovered a, a century ago. It's taken the rest of the world a little bit longer to catch up. <laughs> when, when you're studying the entire Earth, you need the entire need, Earth to... That's right. That's right. So would, would Iris be involved in things like, um, you know, we, we've got a bit of a blind spot in Siberia. We should go set up a station there. Yep. Or is it, you know? yep. Yep. I mean, that, well, that's, there was an amazing part of this whole to, to tie back again into the nuclear uh, oh, territory right. was... There was a time when the U.S. was accusing the Soviets of cheating. Mm. And the Soviets knew they weren't cheating. And seismologists knew they weren't cheating. But that didn't fit with U.S. foreign policy at that stage. The reason we knew that is the U.S. testing was all done in Nevada, which is like setting off an explosion in cheese. It's a very soft rocket. Hear that, Nevada? (laughs) And uh, most of the Russian, the Soviet testing was being done in Kazakhstan, which is in really hard rock. So if you took two identically sized devices and let one off in Nevada and one off in Siberia, in in Kazakhstan, the Kazakh one would look much bigger. Mm -hmm. You get get more, yeah. And And the U.S. was saying, no, no, no. We have very sophisticated techniques. They're being recorded the same. The signals from the Soviet site is bigger, so they're cheating. It's bigger than the threshold. threshold. And so the the Soviets said, we'll prove it. You want to bring your instruments in? Bring them in, set them up, and we'll... And so the U.S. government had a lot of difficulty in doing that. Sure. But but Iris didn't. Uh A university research group was able to... Nobody could tell us not to. <laughs> and so, so we you opened 15 stations up in the Soviet Union and then 15 more in China from areas that had been complete voids in the earthquake recording area for both since the revolution. Right. So, so the consortium would have members from behind what was then the Iron Curtain? The, at that stage, no. At that, that, that stage, it was Iris, 
working directly with the Soviet Academy. Okay. And so it was more a bilateral. Since then, we now must have 10, 15 members from from universities and research groups in the former Soviet Union mm-hmm. and also in, in uh, China. Okay. Do you have instruments at the bottom of the ocean as well? Ah, when you said the whole Earth was covered. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you picked up on exactly the right thing. We have, we have permanent instruments on virtually all of the inhabitable islands in the world, ah, yeah. <laughs> including Christmas Island and the Southwest Pacific where the Mutiny of the Bounty people were, were stranded. You must have very happy graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some, some exotic places you get a chance to go to. But um, no, you're absolutely right. The big hole is the ocean floor. Okay. And that's part of the connection here with Dalhousie. Dalhousie has a very good program and it has had over the years. And they, they're hoping to rebuild a program in ocean bottom recording. It's very, very expensive when you start talking about setting up permanent observatories on the ocean floor. We had one station halfway between California and Hawaii that was on one of the cables, the communication cables, and it it only operated for about eight, ten years, I think. But uh, there are big problems with engineering things on the ocean floor. Is it possible to use, like, sonar-type data where you're you're just listening in the water, as it were? Yeah, you, you... well, I know there'd be a lot more sources of uh, yeah, noise. Fish. I would yeah, and, yeah, and be, a fluid can't sustain sheer, sheer waves. Right. So you'd only be right, 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 hearing yeah. part of the earthquake's energy. And I mean, there've been there've been attempts to put sensors on the ocean floor using sonar to transmit the data up to the surface. But the big issue is how do you how do you what's the power source? Mm-hmm. You can use. Actually, some of our Soviet friends suggested. They provide us with thermonuclear power devices. Little plutonium. I just said, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd, have a, you'd have a hard time getting approval yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. The, 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 the uh, piece of this that was grabbed to put on the, the Voyager disk, I'm not quite sure which, which piece it was. We can most likely ferret that out with, by going looking at some of the details of, of these data. It also interests me that you know one of the issues I think you actually talked about in one of your your second episode was you're asking the listeners to this device to go through a lot of different translating things in a lot of different ways. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know even that little piece that's there in the volcano earthquake thunder you're asking them in the middle of it to adjust their time scales by a factor of yeah. <laughs> 800. So. Yeah. It, it, we, 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 ha- we often have discussions over um, was the audience for the record meant to be the aliens or was it meant to be more for people on Earth yeah. to listen to, yeah. to just, we can all have this communal movement of this, yeah. is, this is us, this, yeah. is, this is our record. Um, and I think this is an ex- excellent example of th- this is more for us. I, I yeah. can't, I can't, yeah. We can't see the aliens really. Uh, but, but if you get one extraterrestrial <laughs> listener, it's worth the investment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not arguing with that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if, yeah. But if they can only hear in the uh, subhertz range, yeah. then... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this will be exciting. <laughs> yes. So when we were listening to your clip just back then, uh, I thought I even, I thought I heard some of it and thought, ooh, that's what I had thought was the thunderstorm, the rain and thunderstorm yeah. on the disc, like yeah. that. Yeah. So that 
might answer your question about which bit was used was a, as a relatively fresh-eared listener. I've only heard the Sounds of Earth clip once, <laughs> and I've heard your clip once, and I would say that the similar part was that um, the Papua New Guinea speeded up no, 800 times. I think it's supposed to be that one. The, yeah. the, it, it, I mean, it does sound like rolling thunder. The, 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 the reason why they sound the same is, is pretty obvious. I mean, you've got... It's still you've a sheer... You've got, well, you've got a, a, an impulsive source yeah. that is very, very broadband. So mm -hmm. it's got all the frequencies are in there. Mm -hmm. And then you propagate it through a medium that has a whole suite of different Tell potential speeds. wave paths and temperatures and, and speeds. And so by the time it, it gets to you, I mean, you know, we, we all know what, what thunder sounds like if it's that bolt of lightning just hit the tree outside your house. Yeah. And that's what those little, those small local events sounded like. Yeah. But the further away you get, it's like, you know, moving away from the, from the, 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 the bandstand. You hear the piccolos disappear very quickly, but the bass drum stays for a long time. So you get this really rich sound that is, it's, it's a transform function. It's, it's yeah. taking a delta yeah. impulse function and putting it through a very complicated, fascinating, uh, spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is that thing. My my old physics uh, professor mentor used to talk about. You know, you you go over a grand piano with all the strings exposed, and you clap your hands very hard. Yeah. All the strings will resonate right. because you got that sharp yeah. impulse, yeah. and you got every frequency yeah. available. Yeah. And uh, yeah, some yeah. some some strings respond better than others, right. but uh, you do see the effect. Right. Uh, so one of the things we do on our on our episodes is like we, we do go through all of the music and all the photos they put on, and um, some of the things we we have questions about. And a, a couple of the photos are geophysical related. And I was wondering if I could show them to you sure. and get your opinion on them. <laughs> they're um, broadly geophysical related. The, broadly geophysical related. So th these two photos, they're, they're, I think they're photos thirty nine and forty in the list. Um, one of which uh, shows the Earth at three points in its um, mm -hmm. evolution, mm -hmm. and the other. Uh, can you guess what the uh, <laughs> what the second shows? This is not a test. I just want to make it totally clear to our listening public <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we are not putting a dignified scientist on the spot here. We're just curious. I'm not sure what that is. Twelve thousand seven hundred fifty-six kilometers must be. It. That's 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 bigger than the Earth. So it's got to be some sort of planetary. It, sequence. Yeah, it? so it is meant to be the Earth. Is like, it? So that's meant to be the diameter. Okay, the yeah, 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 yeah. And um, what this represents is the elemental percentages in the crust okay. and in these in the uh, in the core. So this like the, this circle with the twenty six is element twenty six, right? And it's thirty five percent. The Earth is thirty five percent. But this is sort of nickel iron down here. That's right. Yeah, yeah. in the core is yeah. nickel and iron. Yeah. yeah. Now, when this the first photo with the um, because this one is, is fascinating for Nova Scotians. Oh, because this, this only shows the most recent opening of the Atlantic. And, you know, there was a, this is the Atlantic Ocean, but prior to the Atlantic Ocean, there was, a, there was an other ocean that was a former cycle of the opening of the Atlantic. Really? And in, in Nova Scotia, and especially in Newfoundland, you have rocks in the eastern part that are European affinity. So the fjords on the east coast of the northern peninsula of Newfoundland, those fjords are very reminiscent of Norway for good reason, because they don't belong to North America. They belong to 
the other side of the Atlantic. And this ocean, you know, Gross Morn, yeah. Gross mm-hmm. Morn Park. Yeah. When you're walking on the ground in Gross Morn, you are walking on old ocean floor. And that was the ocean floor that was the former, the Iapetus Ocean, which was the ocean there before. So if you're standing in Gross Morn, looking north, the stuff on your right all was part of European affinity. And the part on the left is North American, and you're standing on the ocean floor that was this ocean in between. Oh. And so this this is this is showing the, the opening of the Atlantic Ocean, but there was another whole ocean there in a in a formal site former cycle of uh, of plate plate motion. Did they know that in 1977 or? Uh, did they know that? I, I, um, they certainly knew that those ophiolites, they're called, these ocean floor rocks in Grossmorn were very unique. Now, that, that, I mean, it's one of the things that got me interested in, yeah. in earth science was this, is, this was just, and when I was a student at Dalhousie in the 60s, this is just when Tuzo Wilson, who was a Canadian geophysicist, he set up the Ontario Science Museum, I think. Center, yes. Oh, the Ontario Science? Yeah. Very he, fun place. He, um, he had been on sabbatical in Cambridge and first came up with one of the key steps forward in what we call transform faults, how the oceans open and spread. And he came, flew. In those days, you didn't take nonstops from England to Toronto. <laughs> he flew through Halifax, stopped here, and gave some talks at Dalhousie when I was an undergraduate, and just fascinating. I mean, he was this world-renowned scientist. Just, he was just high as a kite on excitement <laughs> with graduate students on his hands and knees in the Dell Library, in the Science Building Library, with atlases and maps spread everywhere, just saying, look, look, look at the way the continents fit together. Look at the way, you know, pointing out all these ways in which this continental drift, plate tectonics, that was the very start of it. So early 70s, I'm not sure how where they were at the earlier opening. Mm, that probably explains why they only included that uh, yeah. second opening of the yeah, Atlantic yeah, yeah. in this diagram. And what are these next two? Uh, those are photos. So after showing this sort of the the plate movement right. and the, then they went into a series of photos um, just of different sort of G, of. Um, terrains like so that there's islands and then there's coastline and they show there's a photo of monument valley for desert and there's a photo of the grand tetons to show mountains and things so um they go through this series where they show this is what the earth looks like in various different spots um it's interesting that the 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 photos they chose are are often yeah very interesting and, and and some of them are quite lovely actually well one of the things that i i think might fit into that context that you know i grew up in Halifax, next to the water, and so there's the water out there. And if you wanted to look to the mountains, you looked up into the hills. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, my wife and I took a, a trip through uh, New Mexico, the Grand Canyon, actually other canyons that are even more beautiful than the Grand Canyon, and realized that this is completely upside down. <laughs> you know, you were, you were you were sitting at the top. The 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 the, the, the the plane at the top of the mountains is, is you're, when you're driving there, you're driving aloft very, very flat surface. 
and you come to the edge of a canyon and look down, and you got all this beautiful topography, <laughs> but it's all completely yeah. on its head compared it. to what we're used to when we grow up living in a well, either in Canada, either on the coast or even on the prairies. You know, yeah. you looked up towards the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the whole Western U.S., the whole I think it's, it's you can even see it in some of the the traditions that are there. The world is not the same. It's a very different landscape. <laughs> Interesting. As a physicist, I like to think of that as the zero of potential being yep. mo- <laughs> in motion. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, because you have that picture in front of you, do you think that the hand in the photo, the images of yeah. the yeah that hand, the one in the images of the tectonic motion, do you think that that communicates anything? I. Confusion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think we spent about twenty minutes talking about that hand. Really. Do you know why it's we, there? Uh, I do. Uh, the, that hand is there to let the aliens know that that is Earth at the present. Uh, That's the hand that made Voyager. Also mm. happens to be the size of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we. It was. A, it was and apparently this this diagram was on a, another satellite set of satellites put into space. Um, I think it's called the Laser Geometric Environmental Observation Survey, which was a couple of satellites they put up to do real um, measurements of the Earth, like, like, like getting precise altitude right, and, right, and right. mapping the Earth's yeah, surface. Yeah. And they they stuck that image on. And this was a this was a terrestrial. Is, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, in in orbit around the Earth. Right. And I think they had a notion that um, if you know humanity passed on, these satellites would still be up there. And so if somebody came to Earth, oh, okay. we could we could leave a little <laughs> note for them. Yeah. And, well, uh, you know the the, the gravity satellites. Satellite. So there was Grace and there was GravSat and some other ones and doing these very precise measurements of the Earth's gravity field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have produced fascinating data on the shape of the ocean floor. That these things are so precise that by by averaging and filtering, looking at the 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 the, the ocean surface, you can actually see the topography because of the gravitational attraction. You can see the topography. So all of the ocean mid ocean ridges show up in in just spectacular detail from this gravity satellite data taken at whatever the altitude is. And that some of the, you know, that the early on from ocean soundings, they had an idea that between, you know, Halifax and, and, and Europe, there was a mountain range in between. But they had no idea that it was a feature that, you know, circled the whole of the globe, this mid-ocean ridge system, yeah. right. until they began to systematically put these together, and then it was these gravity satellites that were ones that, that convinced people that, that was that these really were features that were global. So the the, the plate structures of the Earth, like the, the, the tectonic plates, are those um, constantly changing? Is it all mapped now? Like, do we know where all the the the... The borders are at this point, or pretty much okay. know where they all are. But of course, they're they're constantly changing because the Pacific Ocean is being devoured underneath the continents. So you know, eventually, just like that old Iapetus Ocean, there's very little of it left. Pieces that you can walk on right. grows more, but most of it's gone right. because it got sucked underneath the the continents. The same's happening all around the Pacific. Okay, and you know, eventually these the, the, the Pacific will close up. 
and an ocean will open up somewhere else. I tried to do that in the Rift Valley in Africa and wasn't able to do it. It's called a failed rift, but really, yeah. So sometimes when we're talking about the record uh, and the things on it, we, we get a little cynical about whether or not the other space people will uh, be impressed by it. But I am so pleased to be able to have this conversation about interesting science that's on the record and not on the record. So, you know, thank you to the people who made the record. for It's <laughs> well, yeah. the right conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've learned so much. Well, of course, the, the, the fascinating thing about the, what, what has to be, I hope, I'm convinced, one of the unique <laughs> things about the Earth is the Earth is a living organism. I mean, it is changing yeah. constantly. It's, mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not changing in a very narrow bandwidth way, like it's a big you know, pot of lava that's just continually mm, overturning. Right. No, it's, it's creating new life forms and new earth forms and constantly in a way that, you know, it, I'm, I'm convinced if there is life anywhere else in the universe, it's got to come from that similar sort of continuing renewal and things coming in, in a very different way. It, it can't come out of a narrow spectrum you know, right, you need this constant renewal, this constant changing for things right. to catch on right. and start. Yeah, well, interesting. All the different ways. I mean, you know, there there are, there are ice planets, mm-hmm. and they're just ice freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. <laughs> That's pretty boring, you know. And there are others that are most likely lava based, and and there are others that are I mean, uh, uh, huge uh, atmospheres that are turning over, but they're. They're very, very narrow spectrum. Mm-hmm. The Earth is just astounding in the richness of the variety of different life forms and different landscapes that are, that are evolving or have evolved. Well, that is an amazing and optimistic and wonderful point, on probably which, which we'll end on. So uh, thank you very much, David, for coming to talk to us. Well, thank you. We, thank we, you. For stimulating my interest again in this fascinating <laughs> project. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this special podcast of Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back next week with a regular episode. Our thanks again to Dr. David Simpson for sharing with us both his history with the Golden Record as well as all the amazing stories from his career. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.